Alright, welcome back to the Extras everybody, my name is Jack. And I'm Raj, hi everyone. It's good to be with you here, my, my relatively new friend Raj. <laughs> I'm going to start calling you family soon, Jack, you better That's watch right. out. Yeah, we did have a, I mean just, just to get straight into the questions, we did have someone um, who was keen to highlight the, the, the language that you've been using there at St. Paul. Someone was asking, when are we going to move beyond uh, relatively new friends? And oh, Look, I think the answer that. is 10 years. <laughs> 10 you know? years. I, that, that's my way of saying the honeymoon period should go on forever. Yeah. <laughs> I'm well and truly still in them. So, hello to my relatively new friends who are listening into the extras this week. We are really glad that uh, we can have this forum where we, as a church family, we are a family in Christ, even if we're still getting to know each other. Great that we can be grappling with the Word and, and digging into your questions. And we have stacks of questions who've come, uh, that have come in this this uh, Sunday. Uh, I think, just looking at my page here, we've got 32 questions that came in over the course of Sunday. So, lots for us to tackle. Um, I'll say from the outset, we're not going to have the time to cover all of these in detail. Some of the questions uh, are similar, so I've tried to pick ones that capture the main concerns that you express over the course of Sunday. But if, if after today you still have your question burning, feel free to send an email to the office and, and we'll try and get back to you. We hope this is going to be helpful, yeah. Um, Raj, before we get into the the questions themselves, can you just hear your brief recap? So where were we on Sunday for those who may not have been there? Or just to remind us, yeah, what we're we looking at in the Bible. Yeah, so thanks, Jack. Ephesians 2, um, which is just a magnificent chapter of the Bible, and I, I wanted to cover it all in one hit, which it's a big chapter. And so verses 1 to 10 really talk about the dividing walls between us and God that have been shattered because of Jesus Christ. Mm. Um, and, and so I picked up on that dividing walls you know, kind of concept because then in the second half of Ephesians from verse 11 to 22, um, it talks about the dividing walls between people. And so we, in particular, the image of a Jew and the Gentile which had dividing walls between them, and we've seen that all through history, yep. they have now been shattered because of Christ. Mm. Um, so all people now approach God together uh, on the same basis, and, and, and that also means people can be reconciled to each other. Very powerful stuff. Yeah, I really appreciate the fact that you covered the whole chapter in one hit, because I don't think I've ever seen that before. I mean, I've heard plenty of sermons on Ephesians 2. I think it's always been uh, over two weeks, right? Because you do have just so much in there, but... The fact that we have this vertical reconciliation and this horizontal reconciliation together, I think is important. So I appreciate the way you brought them together because they're related. The fact that God has brought us near to him means that he's brought us near to each other as well. We're all kind of sucked in together in this vortex towards Jesus, which means that he brings us to, to close to each other as well. So yeah, yeah I, I appreciate yeah. that. Well, look, that's in the text and that's the advantage mm. of doing larger chunks. The drawback of doing larger chunks um, is we have 32 questions <laughs> because we didn't get to cover all of the details and there's application and so on. So, which is why pros and cons. Yeah, and I mean, it's great that we have the extras because we can pick up on some of those details. And that's where we're going to start. So, uh, a lot of our questions were more of a, an exegetical nature, looking at the details of the text, just wanting to understand particular verses. So, we're going to get into those questions first. We'll just sort of move through the passage. If you're listening along, it'd be great to have Ephesians chapter 2 open on your Bible so you can be tracking as well, unless you're driving. In that case, Keep your eyes on the road, please, and, and listen in. But for those of you who are sitting down, have the, the luxury of that. It'd be good to be following along with the text, too. To start with, we had a couple of questions about uh, chapter 2, verse 2. And there's an interesting phrase there. Uh, I'll read it. Uh, so, this is talking about, you know, we were dead in sins. We're, we used to live like that when we followed the ways of this world. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. Someone's asking, who is the ruler of the kingdom of the air? And how do you get to that conclusion? Yeah, look, thank you for that question. Um, <clears throat> I think in the in the verse, it talks about the ruler 
of the kingdom of the air being the spirit at work who is the, the spirit now working in the disobedient. And so in the Bible, uh, it, so, so it also talks about, you know, the, the worldly, depends on which translation you have, the worldly age. Mm. Um, um, and so all of that is just pointing us to, in, in biblical language, and really in Ephesians as well, we talk about the heavenly realms and the different forces at work. Mm. And so there's the forces of, <clears throat> um, of God through the Lord Jesus, and then there's the forces of the evil one. And, and so that's, that, that's my reading of verse 2. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he's the spirit at work and those who are disobedient does suggest the, the yeah. evil side of the spiritual realm here. Yeah. Another question is coming about this. Uh, if he is the devil, why does he mask himself in purity? I'm not quite sure where that question came from. I wasn't sure if that was a, a phrase that you used or what, but yeah, is that is that something, that, a phrase that you connect with or could explain for us? Yeah, look, I don't recall using that um, phrase, although it's possible. Um, but I also think it's true that the that the dev, that the devil so often does mask himself in purity, and so mm. you know we Jesus I think talks about the wolf that comes in you know sheep's clothing, yeah, and 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 so on. And I actually think that is the most dangerous mm. um, form of being tempted, um, and and because you know if if you see danger kind of in the distance, well we all run away from it, yeah, or we should run away from it, um, but. When someone gets close and is able to tempt you, and I think this is the power of relationship we see in the Bible that can work for good or be or or, or, or um, unhelpful ends, mm. um, and and so I think why does the devil mask himself in purity? Because it's effective. Yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? If he was just out there, you know, dressed up in red with his horns and his pitchfork, just dancing around, obviously you'd you'd be probably less likely to go his way, but he's he's seductive, isn't he? He, he draws us in yeah. through his, yeah. his craftiness. I, the phrase in my mind, he, he masquerades as an angel of light. That's that's somewhere in the Bible, I think. I can't remember. If somewhere it is written, Jack. I think you're right. <laughs> that, exactly, yeah. That, that's what the writer <laughs> the Hebrews would say, so there's good precedent there, yeah. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Helpful. Uh, we'll keep coming, coming on. So in the next verse, verse 3, uh, as Paul's wrapping up this initial section about sin, uh, he says... Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And someone's asking for some clarity there. Who is the we and who is the rest who we are like? Yeah, this is an excellent question um, um, because it's getting us into <clears throat> the use of pronouns in Ephesians. Mm. And, and my own um, understanding and conviction is most of the time the pronoun we is talking about either Paul and the apostles or the Jews. Yeah, okay. And then like the rest is is talking about the Gentiles, which makes sense in this chapter because it's going on to talk about the power of the gospel for the Gentiles and Gentile inclusion. Mm. So um, um, I, I think my, my, my initial gut just on the extras, I haven't had the opportunity to research this or any of the other questions more fully, but that's my initial gut that we is talking about. <clears throat> um, it, it's It's... It's trying to talk about everyone being in the same boat, yeah. which is paving the way then for the second half of Ephesians 2. And so, <clears throat> like the rest, you know, we, the Jews, the apostles, were in the same boat. Mm. Um, and so it's it's laying the way for salvation, the, the, the method of salvation being one in the same for all people. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's spot on. Um, for those of you who want to chase it up, you look back in chapter 1, chapter 1, verse uh, 12, you know, Paul's working through the, the glittering diamond of the gospel 
Uh, and he, as he brings that to a conclusion, he talks about how, verse 12, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And verse 13, and you also were included in Christ. There's this interesting shift as he's talking about the work of the gospel from the we to the you. And I think that's part of what you're saying. But... And it comes, verse 11 in this chapter, therefore remember that formerly you who were Gentiles mm. by birth. Um, and, and um, yeah, and, and, and so on. So uh, it, it may be the case no one of these references is decisive. Yeah. But when you look at the whole kind of argument, mm. which again is the advantage of taking larger chunks, then then I think you 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 come out with things like that. Yeah, helpful. We'll, we'll talk more of Jews and Gentiles later. There were more questions, which we'll get to in a second. I'm still going on the details there. Coming down to verse 6, uh, someone's asked, what does it mean that we were raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms? Yeah, so... Th- uh, uh, Thank you for this question as well. Um, I think the key in understanding this is the, the heavenly realms phrase. Mm. And and so to be thinking, and Ephesians 6, we're really going to hit this in a big way, to just to understand what's happening in this world and in what's called the heavenly realms or the heavenlies is, is closer to the original. And <clears throat> um, the, the kind of concept is we see events in this world in a particular way, but when we look at it through the lens of the heavenly realms, we see exactly the same events from a different perspective and we understand its spiritual significance. And so when we become a Christian, just like Jesus was physically raised, we too are raised. Mm. And at this point in time, we still have a physical experience of this world. The the full expression of of that will come in the physical resurrection um, in, in the time to come. But already, and this is part of the confidence and assurance we can have in Christ, already we have been raised with Christ. It really is quite a remarkable thing. Yeah, I mean... And a privilege. Absolutely, yeah. It blows my mind. Like, right now, Raj, you and I are seated in my office here at church, physically speaking. It's a but... wonderful office too, can I say? <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Love what I've done with the place, yeah. I mean, physically, that's where we are, but I think this verse is profound. Spiritually, there's this greater truth that we are not seated here, but in the heavens, seated yeah. with Christ. You know, that's, it's mind-blowing. And more of that now and not yet stuff to come as well. Keep going down to verse 10. Uh, verses 8 and 9 talk about, you know, you've been saved by grace through faith. Uh, and then verse 10 talks about how we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us. Someone's asked, what are the good works that we are going to do? Yeah, thank you. I think um, we talked about this in at least one of the congregation. Um, really important question. Uh, and that is, I, I the, the works here are talking about, I think, the works of living upright and godly lives. Mm. Um, Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Later on in, um, well, the second half of Ephesians is all about the, the quality of the lives we live in this world. Colossians, mm. you know, talks about putting to death certain things and clothing ourselves with certain other things. So, so that's the kind of impact of being saved, or that's one dimension of it. Um, and it's just really important, and, and Jack, you might, I'm sure you'll have a comment on this. It'd be helpful for you to have a comment on this, actually, in a moment. But we just need to get the order right because mm. we're not saved by those things. Um, these Those things are, the, are like the evidence, and the Bible puts that quite strongly. Yeah. And I, I do feel there will be other occasions, I think, where I talk about this in sermons, but I do feel over 30 or 40 or 50 years... Um, there has been an understandable and a right emphasis of justification by faith alone. Mm. But I think, uh, uh, sorry, swinging out of 
um, an, an improper emphasis on or an improper teaching of justification by works. Yeah. But I think what we haven't done as well as is helping people understand the place of works in the Christian life. And here, Ephesians 2 is just a brilliant place to come for that. Um, it's, 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 it's one of the implications. So works here, I don't think it's talking about secular work, um, um, as some people take it. I think it's really talk. It, it taps into the Galatians 5, the Colossians 3, what's coming in the remainder of Ephesians, um, and, and so on. Yeah. Do you have a thought on this, Jack? Absolutely. I think that this is such a crucial passage in the New Testament because I think it's one of the most concise descriptions of that whole issue of faith and works. You see it really, you know, these three verses really, 8 to 10, make it so clear you are not saved by what you do. You know, your good deeds are not the basis of you being declared right with God. Like, that's just so clear here. It's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Only God can do it as a gift. And yet straight away, you know, in the very next breath, he says that we have good works to do. So clearly our life of godliness is relevant. You know, it's not like some people think that, oh, you know, I'm saved by grace, so therefore I don't have to do anything. You know, what do I, no matter what I do, I'm going to be acceptable to God. Like, in Paul's mind, that's not the point. That you have been saved out of, you know, the beginning of the chapter, out of death in sin. Like, we were dead and we've been made alive and, you know, reanimated, if you like, to serve God and, and live a godly life and love people and, and be a force for, for good in this world. All of that matters. But none of those things are the basis or the grounds of our salvation. They are the, the fruit. They're the thing that flows out of the wonderful good work that God has done in us. Yeah, We'll come and touch on those issues uh, in slightly different ways in some of the questions further down the track as well. But really important. I mean, it's so crucial to get that right. This is, you know, you can go off the the knife edge either way into legalism and thinking that, you know, you just got to be good enough to, for God or into licentiousness and thinking sin doesn't matter and you can just, you know, sin as much as you want and grace will increase. But no, like the, the Christian path is saved by grace, but for works. Really important. Um, we'll keep coming on. So uh, a bunch more questions about the second half of the chapter. Someone's looking at verse 12. Uh, oh, sorry, verse 11 even. You have the, um, the question of circumcision that gets raised as we start thinking about the Jews and the Gentiles. A uh, little detail in verse 11, it says... Um, circumcision which is done in the body by human hands. And someone's asked, why does it say in the body? Uh, I would have felt it would have been to the body. That would be more normal. You know, is that significant or is it just a translation thing? I think it's just a translation thing, Jack. Um, um, The Greek sitting behind it doesn't necessarily have the same precision as the English terms of in and to. But I also think in the body, it's, it's like it's a metaphor trying to just help us understand it's a physical thing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. We might say in English, well, you know, we've, I made a, a mark in my flesh. Like that's, um, that might be an, a thing you say in English. Here. In the body sounds a little bit weird in, in, in English. But yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I don't see there's huge significance there. Um, but good to clarify. So we'll keep going. Uh, verse 14, uh, talking about the work of Christ to bring the two warring parts of humanity together. There's that little line, verse 14, for he himself is our peace talking about Jesus Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean that he is our peace? Um, I, I take that as just an expression of really summing up what chapter 2, 1 to 10 is trying to say mm. about the reconciliation that we have with God because of Christ and the peace that that therefore brings. And and so once again, I, I just think we we ought to be blown away when we realise 
um, the impact of that that vertical reconciliation, as you called it a moment ago, mm. um, which means we now have extraordinary peace. And and the linkage here is just really trying to help us understand that that extraordinary peace we now have with God is a peace that then also extends to one another. Um, so I talked about it in terms of dividing walls being shattered mm. and peace is another concept that, is picking up on exactly the same thing in a different way. Totally, yeah. You have the divine wall of hostility knocked down, so what you have now is peace. Yeah. Helpful. Uh, last little question on the details. Verse 15, uh, I'll read the verse. So this is the way that he destroyed the barrier. Uh, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Someone's asked, what does it mean when Jesus sets aside in his flesh the law? Yeah, I, I would read that as um, Jesus set aside because of his flesh. Um, and so it's the same kind of thing. It's trying to help us to see the significance of his flesh, so his death mm. um, in this case. And Romans 3 picks up on this concept too, that a way of righteousness has now come apart from the law. And it talks about um, um, atonement, which comes because of Jesus' death. And yeah, so this is trying to just point us... To exactly the same place. Mm. Also, again, in the context of the first half of Ephesians two, which very much um, you know talks about um, our 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 movement from death to life because mm. of Jesus' death and resurrection. Yeah, yeah, really helpful. Thanks so much for helping us clarify some of those details. It's really good to just thrash out the nuts and bolts of the text. That's. I wish that's... I could preach the sermon again. Actually, having you know just thinking more deeply, it's great. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that we love about the extras too. We it get might to be longer, but anyway. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, indeed. This is the the extras because it's extra length as well. Uh, that's good. All right, having covered some of those details, what we're going to do now is get into a couple of the bigger theological issues that come out of this passage. We had a bunch of questions come in about Jews and Gentiles and the relationship between them. Now, so we're going to cover a few of those. First one says, The scriptures declare that God does not show favoritism. This person might be thinking of a verse like Romans 2 verse 11, which says that. But is the separation and choice of the Jews as God's chosen people a demonstration of a God that does show favoritism? Uh, very thoughtful question. Thank mm. you. So, look, I, I think we see back in Abraham, so we go back to the promises of Genesis chapter 12, um, and we see that, but I think the way to put it is like this, that God chose Abraham and the nation of Israel as the means by which to bring blessing to the world. Mm. And and that's always been his purpose. Um, yes, it's clearer to us now than it was to them at the time, or at least the, the mechanisms of how that would all work through Jesus. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so I, I think it's easy to confuse the means of that blessing coming with the favoritism. I also think it's true that um, Romans 2 is trying to... I'm just looking that one up. Romans yeah, 2 is... Yeah, Romans 2 verse 11. Was so the, Romans 2 verse 11, I think. Yeah, so... Romans 2 is now is talking about the situation this side of Christ. Mm. And it's just trying to make the point, which really culminates in, in chapter 3, 
that now, same point as Ephesians 2 actually, that now both Jew and Gentile approach God on the same basis. Yeah. And and really Romans is perhaps coming from a slightly different angle. It's trying to speak to the Jews about the need to, you know, um, understand justification by faith. And it's trying to say to them, don't consider yourselves as a favoured status just because you're Jews. Mm. And you don't have to understand Christ. So Ephesians is coming from a slightly different angle because it's speaking more to Gentiles. Yeah. There's lots in there, isn't there? I think the Romans 2 thing's helpful. I mean, the point in Romans 2, part of what he says there is that if Gentiles do, you know, obey the law that is written on their hearts, then they would be justified. So God, in a sense, does hold Jews and Gentiles to the same account. Jews had more access to the revelation of God because they had the, the tablets written in stone and then they had the scriptures. But Gentiles too, you know, God has revealed so much to us in creation and that if Gentiles were receptive to that revelation, then they would be able to be justified on that basis too. So there is this mirroring in how... God treats people, you know, he holds people to the same account as part of the thing on there in Romans 2. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's important actually as well, but just the the basis of judgment now is everyone's on the same plane. Yeah, I think you're right though. I think there is this progressive revelation thing as well, like seeing the arc of scripture that God did set his affection in a special way on the nation of Israel, but the end that had in mind was blessing going to the whole world, and now we are in that age where there is clearly no distinction. Yeah. That's important to say, Jack, because... Genesis 12, you know, where I guess would be the point you would really come back to those promises mm. to Abraham where people would potentially argue that there's favoritism. Um, it's so clear there that the, the purpose is to bring blessing um, um, to the world. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah, I think that's going to lead us on to the next couple of questions. So that's good. Um, next one, someone's asked, why were the Gentiles once excluded from the hope of God? This person says, I understand that it was always God's plan to give salvation first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, as it says in Romans 1. But to be honest, I just don't understand why, this person says. Thank you for your honesty. Um, Why were we as Gentiles excluded from the hope of God for so long? Um, Thank you. Yes, like like you just said, Jack, thank you for the honesty. And that's one of the wonderful things about the extras and, you know, church life, we can struggle with things together and mm. we're all still learning. So it's terrific to have this question. Um, I I think it's not so much that the Gentiles were excluded. It's more about this means of blessing that, that was to come. Um, and if I may, Jack, I think this is also connected to the next question. Could Gentiles be saved into God's family prior to Christ's death and resurrection? Mm-hmm. And, and um, I think I talked about that one in one of the congregations. The answer is yes. And really, it, it, it all comes back to trusting God. And and people then were told to trust God. People could, could you know, have a status associated with the Jews. And the key thing was this trusting God. Um, and the key thing for the Jews was trusting God. And in the case of the Jews, they had very particular, I think Leviticus, for example, goes into so much detail because it, it, it really holds up to us that God... That, that people needed to understand what God wanted mm. and respond in that way. Um, and, yeah, so I don't think I, I go along with the premise here that the Gentiles were excluded from salvation, but it is certainly true that the focus of the Old Testament is in the Jews. Um, and that's because this the, the, the genealogies we're continually given just want to keep propelling us to, to look for the coming of a Messiah. That's that's Jesus. Yeah. yeah. And you see little glimpses of that all through the Old Testament. You see these these figures who come from outside Israel and are joined to Israel. So you look at 
you know, women like Rahab at the start of the book of Joshua or um, Ruth, who, you know, she's a Moabitess. She comes from far outside the land of Israel and is, you know, brought into the family of promise. You see there's little hints that uh, the, the blessings are going to come to the nations in a much fuller way, but it's not like Gentiles were cut off, you know, and had absolutely no chance to come to Israel and yeah. become part of the nation and yeah. experience the blessings of God there as well. And so, Jack, you've given some great examples there. It's also the case, the promises themselves mm. at key points are just reiterated um, in different ways um, so that people don't lose hope and yeah. also so that we can look back and see how God's worked. Yeah. One of the differences is I think that now, you know, in the Old Testament, Gentiles did have the chance of becoming a part of Israel. So you had to come and join the nation. So yeah. it wasn't just converting to a religion. It was kind of changing your citizenship. Like it was, you know immigrating and being naturalized and you know, like it was joining the nation and the thing that's different in the new testament is now people of all nations you know we don't have to become jewish citizens you know we don't have to become citizens of the nations of israel to become part of the people of god now now it's people of all nations regardless of their yeah. earthly citizenship can be citizens in heaven thank you we'll keep going um last question on this uh, someone's thinking i guess beyond the the scope of ephesians 2 thinking about jews and gentiles now this person says, while Gentiles are no longer separated from God, like Ephesians 2 says, is it fair to say that the Jews are now excluded or separated through their rejection of Christ? I think I would say that's true of everyone. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. Mm. Um, if, if now the basis of judgment, because, because we all deserve to be judged, um, now the only hope of salvation is being able to say that Christ has died in my place. Mm. And so whether someone's a Gentile or a Jew, if there is a, if someone's not able to say that, um, the testimony of the Bible is they will be separated from God. Yeah. So it's not like all Gentiles are now automatically brought to God. Like now Gentiles can, you know, have the option of becoming part of the people of God by repentance and faith in Christ. So it's not like it's an automatic thing. And in the same way, it's not like Jews are now automatically excluded because they're Jewish. I mean, the person who's writing this, you know, Paul, was a Jew, right? A Jew who repented of his rejection of the Messiah and came to trust in Jesus and was therefore able to be become part of the true Israel of Israelites who accepted the Messiah and welcomed yeah. him. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's helpful to say that it's, yeah, that barrier has now been brought down. So now anyone, we're all on the same level playing field. We are still ultimately separated from God by our sins if we reject Jesus but now there's no barriers to anyone coming to Jesus and coming to faith in him. Which which really brings us back to the argument of Ephesians 2. Yes. Yeah. And let's keep going into it. So um, this just a great segue again. Um, coming out of the Jew and Gentile questions, we had a bunch of questions also grappling with this whole issue of salvation by grace and through, through faith and apart from works. So we'll, we'll just tackle a couple of questions on this. Someone's asked, is there a wall between God and non-Christians? Um, so Raj, you mentioned that that wall, to, you know, a wall to keep people out is bad. You know, for example, the Great Wall of China and Donald Trump's wall, which you, you cited. Um, so, what about God's wall to keep sinners out of His presence? Isn't that, you know, how is it a good thing for God to be walling people out as well? It's a very thoughtful question. Thank you. Yeah, um, I think I would. The way I understand the Bible here is that it is humanity that has created that wall mm. by by going right back to Adam and Eve and our rejection of God and that's something each one of us continues. And the way the Bible puts it, and Ephesians 2 is one of many places, Romans, just, just everywhere, um, we ought to be 
incredibly thankful to God that He has reached out mm. and given us the opportunity to be reconciled to Him. Yeah. Um, so I would I would just want to flip that around a bit and and just look back to the cross and look forward to the promises to the, the return of Christ that mean that wall can be shattered the wall that, that we have created mm. now if God didn't deal with people in this way that would mean he's not a just God yeah and and so we come back then to the character of God and and yeah it's a wonderful thing that he's done to to bring his justice and his mercy together in Jesus Christ. Mm. It's an important point, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's not like sinners are there just really wanting to come to God and God's the one who's erected this barrier and he's the one who's cruel keeping us outside. No, like we who reject God do just exactly that. We reject God. We, We don't want him. I mean, that's the language of Romans 3. No one seeks God. All have turned away. It's like, I think, I think, I mean, there's, there is something on both sides, right? Like, as you said, God is the holy and just God, so he cannot have sinners in his presence. So, you know, he is the one who cast Adam and Eve out of the garden. But I think the implication of thinking about what sin is is that they wanted to go as well. They wanted to flee from God and hide from him because yeah. sin means that we're estranged on both sides. And as you said, all the initiative to come across that barrier and knock it down comes from God. So thanks be to God that he is the one who has brought down the barrier. And we, we do need to be careful not to be like Adam in our response. And I mentioned that in passing. I just, Mm. you know, Adam was confronted about his actions and he went to blame the woman and then blame God. Yeah. And, and, yeah, the Bible does just try to highlight to us we are accountable Mm. and we are responsible. Yeah. Yeah. I take it part of repentance is owning that we have done wrong. Yeah. Admitting that we are sinners. That's... Which is why we say confessions in church regularly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. We'll keep going. Uh, someone's asked, I know that we shouldn't take God's kindness in saving us for Jesus for granted, but what is the point of a loving God creating humanity if he didn't want to try and save us? So I guess someone grappling with, yeah, why Why did God do it? I mean, like, was God bound to save us? Maybe that's sort of the, the, the force yeah. behind the question. So, once again, a really... A really helpful and thoughtful question um god certainly wanted to try to save us he has done that at the cost of his own son Mm. Um, but to push the question which is what you just did jack was he bound to save us well well no and he you know he didn't he didn't create he didn't create us as puppets he created us with free choice Mm. um a bit like in the same way those of us who have children we want our children to have free choice and we raise them to make choices sometimes they're difficult choices in extreme times they turn their back on us, there's broken relationship and so on. Um, God, God created, <clears throat> sorry, God created people with free choice um, and has gone through extraordinary effort to try to bring people back to him when they have wandered off. Mm. Again, just such a great privilege. Yeah, I think you're right to say that God didn't have to. I mean, God would have been well within his, you know, good, right, just wisdom to destroy humanity and give us the judgment we deserve like that that would be perfectly right yeah so and i guess the person asking the question what would be the point of god doing that i mean he would show his glory to the universe through his justice that's true but it seems to me that god has decided to show his glory through not just his justice but his mercy as well and the extravagant love that he's shown us in jesus far beyond what we deserve also shows the the universe his glory so that seems to me part of why he's done it as well 
It's big questions, though, right? Why does big Why does God do what He does? Big yeah. Questions we could um, sermon series from these questions. Indeed. Actually. Yeah. Another big question. The next one. Uh, if God knows who will receive the gospel, why do we have to live on Earth before having eternal life? Can't God just send us straight to our predestined place on the get go? Yeah. You know who's going to say it. Why don't you just, you know, beam me up, Scotty, just zip us straight to heaven? Star Trek fan, are you, Jack? Uh, not particularly, but, you know. <laughs> um, look, I, I think, I've interested in your comment here too. Yeah. I've, I've only just seen this one as we're talking about it. Um, again, he wants us to have a genuine choice. And it is, like, yes, he has chosen us, but it's also our genuine choice for two things work together. And... I, it just feels, doesn't it, it would be just a bit artificial to say, look, I, I knew what's going to happen and zap, here you go. Mm. Um, he wants us to go through, come to our own conclusions. That, of course, has to work together with his own sovereignty. Yeah. Um, and, and it does. So we're on this, we're in this phase at the moment where, you know, yes, he, he knows, even determines um, who will receive the gospel. But at the same time, that's one side of the same coin, which is we also live life and choose mm. and to end up in the same place. Sure, yeah. What's your thought on this one, Jack? I think, I mean, another way to bring focus to this question, you could you could take it back to the Garden of Eden. So if you look forward in history, you know, on the day of Christ, we will be with Jesus, we'll be perfect, we won't be able to sin anymore. How good will that be? Could God have just made Adam in that state of perfection and just said, all right, I'm going to make human beings, they're going to be perfect, they won't sin, it'll be great. Like, I take it, yes, if God can make us perfect on the last day, I take it he could have done it on the first day. So why did God decide to ordain a world where sin would not only be possible, but would end up happening? Yeah. I take it the answer to that question is, again, it's, it's about why does God do anything? The ultimate reason I think the Bible gives us is for the demonstration of his glory. Yes, that's true. And I think that the hints we get in, in places like Romans chapter 9, the, the demonstration of God's mercy upon uh, vessels who deserve his wrath is one of the ways that God does that, that, that God has taken this world through this journey of, of fall and then to restoration to show us how great and powerful and glorious he is. Yeah. I think that makes sense to me. I mean, uh, if the story was just God made a perfect world and it was perfect, like that would demonstrate his, his glory. But the world that God has made demonstrates not just his glory, but also his his justice in his punishment of sin and his mercy in his salvation of sinners. And we get this multifaceted picture into all the attributes of God based on the particular world he's decided to make. Yeah, that's great. They're, again, they're big thoughts, aren't they? They're big <laughs> they're, um, thoughts. We think big thoughts on the extras. That's what we're here to do. And I, I think that's that's what I'd say. Yeah, well, the, the point of life on earth is that God would be glorified. Yeah. Great question, though. One more question thinking about this big you know, big issue of salvation by grace through faith. Someone's asked, what is faith? Uh, and to push that further, how is faith different to the belief that the devil has about who Jesus is? Um, question, you know, more questions that come out here. Uh, how is it a gift? If faith is a gift, how do we have it and have more of it? Yeah, talk us, uh, to, to us about that, Ryan. What is faith? Yeah, so faith, faith is one of these words that has become reasonably unhelpful in the English language. And it... You know, in the, in the Bible, you'll also see the word believe. It actually comes both from the same Greek term that sits behind them both. Um, and I I wonder if, I don't know if this would work entirely, but I think the word trust is a better word. Mm. Um, because in the modern day, whether it be the word faith or believe, um, 
we believe something, but we may or may not act on it. Uh, it's a passive thing. But trust is an active thing. Yeah. Um, we're both sitting down in your office, Jack, on chairs. We're trusting in our chairs. Um, you know, it's one thing to, to stand at a distance and believe a chair's going to hold you up, but we're actually demonstrating trust by sitting in the chairs. Mm. And that's the concept of that the Bible talks about when it uses the word faith or believe. I don't think it uses the word trust um, at this point in time, maybe in the future. Mm. Translators will think that that kind of thing to dem- to pick up on the active is a better way to, to understand it. Yeah, now, now that that I think captures the second part of a question. The, mm. the, the devil does believe, um, but the devil doesn't trust. Yeah. So in that, I mean, that first use of the word believe there, what do you mean by that? In what sense does the devil believe in Jesus? Uh, well, the devil knows that Jesus exists. Mm. And this is one of our issues today, that we talk about it in terms of, you know, restricting our faith to the intellectual realm or, mm. you know, believing but not, not acting. It's what James 2 picks up on. We had questions earlier about the connection with faith and works. Yeah. Um, and so if there's active trust, it will result in some kind of evidence. Mm. And and that's what, so so one is what the word what the word is. The other is, the other important thing is what is the object of it. Yeah. Um, if you trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, that that is reflected in our hearts and in in our lives. Mm. The devil did not. The devil believed that Jesus existed, but didn't trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Um, and his life was lived quite different. Yeah. How is it a gift? I I tried to outline aspects of that the other the other day and really it's quite extensive um if if you if we just pause and think about it again for a moment every aspect of us coming to know jesus and being reconciled to god is a gift from god yeah unpack that again for us Uh, so you you go right back to well you could even go back further than i did on sunday god's plan Mm. was always to send Jesus. Yeah. Um, he promised through the Old Testament prophets and prepared us. Two-thirds of our Bible is the Old Testament. He's, he's, he's done that for us. We talked spoke about that a few weeks ago. He's then sent Jesus to come and die. Um, that was his purpose. Yeah. So all of that is, is God. We have nothing to do with any we of that. nothing to do with that. <laughs> he caused Jesus to rise from the dead mm. where we see God's ultimate demonstration of power power over death um, he caused people to record the scriptures apostles he prepared them he, mm. they recorded the scriptures and all through the ages um, there have been attempts to stamp out the scriptures God yeah. caused them to be preserved that's right um, he has now caused the Bible to be you know the biggest selling book of all time yeah um, mm. He has caused every single one of us to come into contact with the gospel through someone or someone pointing us to the scriptures or turning up at church or whatever. There's a whole variety of stories about how people have done that. Um, But it doesn't stop there either. Then God worked by his spirit in our hearts so Mm. that we might, I think in 2 Corinthians it talks about the veil being lifted up from over our hearts and our eyes. Yeah. So that we would understand. So you, you just, and, and, and there's other, you know, bits and pieces. I think individuals perhaps can reflect back on their lives and just see how God has worked and circumstances have transpired under the sovereignty of God mm. um, to bring all of those things together. Yeah. And so 
it's just an extraordinary gift. Absolutely. I mean, hearing unpack like that, it's almost overwhelming, I think, to the more you think about it, the more you think how utterly dependent we are on God to bring us to faith in Him. It does great against our world, though, doesn't it? Like, we live in this world where we want to make our own choices, you know, and, and assert ourselves, and, you know, I'm the captain of my own fate and the master of my destiny. So the idea that ultimately I can't even believe in Jesus unless that gift is given to me by God, like, that does great against us. I, I mean, looking at everything the Bible says, I don't see how it can be any other way. Uh, I think the picture of the Bible again and again is that we sinners do not trust God on our own. I mean, I pointed to Romans 3 before, I'll say it again. The, Paul's conclusion there is that no one seeks God. None of us of our own volition are going to turn to him and decide we want him. Uh, our sin is just so utterly all-encompassing. The, you know, the theological term for that is total depravity which is not the idea that humans are you know, utterly wicked and as bad as they could be, but it's the idea that every part of us is infected by sin such that there's nothing we can do on our own to turn to God and trust in Him. But thanks be to God that He does give it as a gift. It is entirely by His grace, and that's His grace that He has done and continues to lavish on people. So, yeah, yeah, 100% a gift. That's a good thing. Thanks for helping us see that out as well. We'll come into, so we're going to land the plane with some more sort of, you know, application, you know, pastoral type questions. Uh, great to wrestle with some of these big theological questions. Let's uh, think about our lives. Uh, one person's texted in, hi Raj. Hello there. Hi. Uh, uh, if we are saved, what then are we accountable for? And maybe to unpack that a little further, I guess this person's getting at, you know, if we're saved from sin and, you know, why is it that we still do things like confess our sins in church together, like you mentioned. You know, if we're saved, how can we be accountable for anything? Yeah, look, I I think the the way the Bible tries to talk about the accountability is primarily um, in relation to have we received Christ or not, mm. and it's talking about our sin, our sinfulness um, before we come to Christ. And so one of the reasons we say confessions in church is just to keep reminding us of that foundation upon which we approach God. Ephesians 2 just has that extraordinary flow in such a tight 10 verses mm. of you were dead um, because of Jesus, you now made alive, purpose, you know, good works. So I, I want to push the accountability kind of issue into the first couple of verses. Yeah. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Mm. Um. The danger of pushing it into verse 10 about purpose is you then get into the issues which we've also been talking about of, of thinking that we're saved by what we do yeah, and we're not. Mm. Now, we need to nuance that a little bit um, as we've tried to already that um, we are saved for a purpose and if there's no evidence of that purpose in our lives, you then have to go back and think about where, where, is, your heart, where is your heart at mm. before God. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, hopefully I've I've reflected on that question. Yeah, I mean to push it a little further, I think one thing that happens in the New Testament is that for Christians, the the sin and kind of um, like a sin dynamic changes. You know, for those who are outside Christ, sin brings condemnation. We're guilty before Him. Everything we've seen in Ephesians two shows us that once you come to Christ, you know, sin is dealt with, uh, saved by grace. The Bible still has a lot to say about Christians and sin, but it's no longer in that guilt-condemnation dynamic. It changes yeah. it to, I mean, there's other things. There's there's a family dynamic. You know, Hebrews 12 talks about how 
the Lord disciplines those he loves. And, you know, since Christians have this ongoing struggle with sin uh, and our father disciplines us because he wants us to grow, you know, like any father disciplines his children, our father in heaven um, will work through our life to help us see the the wrong that, you know, that we continue to do in sin, but not because we're guilty and condemned, but because he's our father who loves us and wants us to change. I mean, you see it in Ephesians as well. We're going to see later on the language of, you know, putting off the old self and putting on the new, which has been created in Christ. We're going to see that in Ephesians 4. And part of the point seems to be that you've been created as this new creation in Christ. So since it just sort of doesn't make sense anymore, it's like, it's like the old clothes that don't fit. So take them off and yeah. put on your new outfit because that's who you are now in Christ. Yeah. All of that's outside the sin and guilt dynamic, but it's, yeah, we're still called to, to fight against sin. You know, the Ephesians 6, the spiritual warfare language comes into it as well. But not because it's a judicial thing. It's it's our Father who loves us and who wants us to grow to be like Jesus. Well, I don't know how this works, Jack. I wonder mm. if it's a bit like a marriage or a family. You know, you mentioned family. Um, we know in relationships we let people down. We don't want to. Mm. And we want to do better. We want that relationship to be not just restored but powering on yeah and i just wonder if there's something in that as we think about our relationship with god yeah i mean ephesians 4 right it's the grieving the holy spirit is the language there isn't it that's um that's one of the things too when we live an ugly life we we bring grief to god the holy spirit that seems to be language there. i look forward to hearing how you unpack that for us in a few weeks time but i've got um, a few weeks <laughs> that's right we'll get there yeah, no, this has been helpful. This is good. Um, we'll keep going on. So to wrap us up today, we had a bunch of questions really grappling with some of the harder dimensions of this horizontal reconciliation idea. So we've been talking about the peace that Christ brings is not just between him and us, but between each other. There's there's a lot of questions to ask about that because life is messy and, and life can be tricky. So we'll finish with a few questions on, on this. First one, uh, horizontal reconciliation is a great gift of the gospel, but how does that look... Uh, sorry, how does that take into account power differences? Uh, so perhaps in individual relationships, but also in larger scale situations like dominant cultures. Um, yeah, look, this is an excellent question. And I'll be honest, I, this is this is challenging and difficult. I don't know what it looks like. Mm. Um, I understand where, where the question's coming from. Let's unpack that to start with. What do you think this person might be getting at? Oh, well, there, there's power dynamics in personal relationships um, um, frequently. Um, and by that, I, I just mean, you know, one person is in a position of more power than someone else. Mm. And that 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 might be a reality, it might be a perception, but, but even if it's a perception, it plays into how a relationship works. So that can be really challenging when, when someone fear, doesn't feel that they can even raise an issue because of that power, you know, dynamic. Um, the question about cultures is, is exactly the same. There are some dominant cultures in the world. In the world, whenever you feel part of a minority culture or group, um, that can be really challenging to feel like you have horizontal reconciliation. Mm. Um, so that's how I understand it. Just, it's multifaceted. I get that challenge. Yeah. Um, and I think you know it, it's always easier if the person with the greater power makes the kind of step. Mm. Um, if it's a personal relationship um, or a dominant culture making that step. Yeah. Um, frequently in world events, we hear of challenges in that area. Um, so I, I totally understand. Sometimes um, in this world, before Jesus returns, this is, this is going to be challenging and difficult. Mm. 
it just reminds us we're not in a perfect world. And yeah. that's another thing that makes us a long for the return of Jesus. That it does. Absolutely. I mean, an, an example of this, maybe to help flesh it out, um, I hope this is an example that, you know, there are plenty of controversial issues. You know, this question touches on big issues like systemic injustice and all sorts of things. But, you know, to bring it into the realm of something we can probably all agree on, it makes me think about... Um, me, for example, me with my son, Oscar, you know, there is a huge power difference between a father and a son, isn't there? And in our relationship, um, there are plenty of situations throughout the week where reconciliation is required. And sometimes that's Oscar's fault uh, because he has uh, done the wrong thing or he's uh, frustrated or, and, you know, for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes it's my fault because I'm the one who's impatient and frustrated. And I take it that when, when Oscar and I reconcile those differences, it is different depending on who's in the wrong, isn't it? I mean... When, when, when I am the one who has been impatient and I've lost my temper, I think there is a far greater responsibility for me to take the initiative in apologising to Oscar and telling him how sorry I am. And, and, you know, I'm the one who should know better, in a sense. Uh, so I think there is a greater responsibility for the one in the, the authority in that situation to take the initiative in seeking reconciliation. And, I mean, you know, that's just one little example. But yeah, it's a good example. Some of the things we're talking example. about then. Yeah. Mm. Next question then, uh, is there any application from these ideas for broken relationships between people when one is a Christian and one is not? So Ephesians written to the church, uh, that is one context, where what can we say about reconciliation outside the yeah, church perhaps? Yeah, excellent question. I, I, this is actually something I was I wanted to say more about on the weekend, but time didn't let me. So yeah, thank you for this opportunity. So I, I think um, the way I would think of this is the opportunity we have is to show Christ's love and to be marked out as different in the world. Um, and uh, what comes to my mind, I think it's 1 Peter 2, verse 10 and 11 or thereabouts, that just talks about living such godly lives among the pagans that they will look and glorify God. And mm. I take that to be someone coming to Christ. Yeah. So a different kind of trajectory, I think it's quite right to say if Ephesians 2 is, is talking about people all now living under the Lordship of Christ. Mm. But I think when you go, for example, down the 1 Peter track and, you know, um, and, and, and other places, you end up in very similar places mm. um, <clears throat> in terms of tangible living in this world. Uh, to, to be the one to take the first kind of step, to be the one to extend grace, yeah. mercy and so on, um, coming from the same motive... And I think it, it just works itself out differently. Mm. But but I also want to acknowledge, I think it's right, Ephesians 2 um, is indirect in talking about these things. Yeah. I think it's probably fair to say that our expectations are different. Uh, well, can be different, at least, when we're talking about what it would look like to reconcile with a non-Christian. When it's, you know, two Christians, you know, two brothers or two sisters or a brother and a sister in Christ who have a dispute... I think we can appeal to, as you know, as the church, even we can appeal to both of them, as Paul does throughout his letters. You know, I think of something like Philippians. You know, he appeals to Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. You know, these two women who had this dispute, because as Christians, we know the uh, forgiveness that we've been shown by our Father. So we call on each other to extend grace and show forgiveness. And again, and you know, there's complications with that, as we'll come to in the next question. But with Christians, we can we can at least appeal on that level that this is something we're all seeking to grow in together. For the person who's not a Christian, I don't think you have that same expectation that you're going to call them to, uh, you know, Christ-shaped forgiveness. Like, you can encourage them because I think it's a good thing just for human beings in general, but you won't, won't have the same, I guess, expectation. A, a verse that comes to mind, Romans 12, um, Romans 12, verse 18, as far as it depends on you, mm. live at peace with everyone. Mm. I think that verse is such a telling 
you know, way to frame it in Paul's mind there. But um, the goal is, yeah, the goal is peace with all people. But there's an admission there in that verse that sometimes you can do everything on your part to make it happen and it may still not happen. And the responsibility is for us to do as much as we can to live at peace with others and to show grace and extend forgiveness and uh, seek reconciliation ourselves. But at times, that's going to be a one-way street. And reconciliation can only happen if everyone's on board, I think. So as far as it depends on you, but it's not always going to be possible. That's an excellent verse to come to, Mm. which actually is used... There's an organisation, PeaceWise, some people will have heard about, mm. that really in this space try to give people tools and, you know, practicalities for how to reconcile. Yeah. And, and that's actually their key verse. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. There you go. Yeah. That could be, if you're looking to chase that up further, listeners, that could be a way to go as well. Last question, Raj. We'll land it with this. What does it look like to approach reconciliation and unity where trust has been broken, and more particularly in situations of abuse? I'm thankful for this question because... Um, I didn't have the opportunity to say anything about situations of abuse. And really, I think that that brings in a whole bunch of other things. You know, there's significant pain depending on the type of abuse as well. Um, Now, I think we need to be careful not to hide behind, Mm. you know, um, some forms of abuse. But but on many occasions, the it, it really is quite traumatic. Yeah. And and. So I still think reconciliation is is you know a godly goal, mm. um, but we also just need to appreciate in this fallen world before Jesus returns that there will be some situations where um, reconciliation is just is is not realistic. I'm aware of some of those situations. It's really it's awful, mm. and yeah. So we need to take that into account. At the same time, not hide behind that if reconciliation is possible. Yeah. I, I think I want to encourage people in that situation to reach out to someone. Absolutely. Yeah. And and just talk about it. Um, there's pain behind this. Mm. And we as a church want to help pray with people. Um, we, want to, we want to hear the pain that's behind it. We also want to try to help yeah. if it is possible. Sometimes through counselling and other means, reconciliation is possible. Mm. And that is a goal that everyone wants. Yeah. Yeah, but it can be challenged. Absolutely, yeah. And if, that, if you're listening in that situation that you are in, then we we grieve with you. And as a church, that's not something that we think people should have to hide and suffer in silence. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing. It can be hard to even begin to open that conversation. But please reach out to someone, be it your, your pastor or a growth group leader or a trusted friend, it's, it's really important to begin that journey together. I mean, if I can say something further, I think sometimes Christians can come at this whole thing in a way that's like trite and unhelpful, as if, oh, if there's any kind of situation out there, first thing is, look, you got to be reconciled, like that's, you know, that's the goal, yeah. let's just make that happen, as if that were like a trivial and easy thing, and so often it is not, it, you no. know, and I, for those people who are in this kind of situation, I want to, you know, yeah, hold, I mean, as you said, Raj, hold out the possibility of reconciliation as, as an aim, but that's not the first step in the conversation. You know, if someone is still in a situation of abuse and is in danger, like getting out of that situation is imperative. That's that's got to be the first point of call. You know, if there are children who are vulnerable in a situation, you know, getting them to safety. You know, there's there's other priorities too. Um, and reconciliation and forgiveness are different things. I think that's important to say. Yes, and it may be that further down the track, after you know, as these situations go on. It may be become possible as if you are someone who has been abused, you know, even to forgive someone for that is a huge process to go through. 
and that's that's a you know a long journey and not a trivial thing at all. And even at the end of that, it may be that you, uh, by the grace of God, are able to forgive someone for the wrong they've done you. But that doesn't mean that you've reconciled with them because, like we said before, reconciliation is a two-way street. Reconciliation is a restored relationship. And sometimes there's going to be situations where you can forgive someone, but you could never trust them again. And reconciliation won't be possible. And that is the reality of life in a fallen world, as you've said. But, yeah, we, we, that's the world we live in. And that's the world that we have yeah. to learn how to navigate uh, with the wisdom of God. The really important comments you've just made, Jake. Thank you. There's lots, I mean, there's so much to say here. And as we've said, if you need to talk to someone about this, please do. We, our doors are open and we'd love to begin that journey with you because it, it's, it's really serious. It matters. Yeah. On that note, we're going to wrap up our time together on the extras. Uh, it's been a, a, a big session, lots of amazing questions, and we hope this has been helpful for you as we've wrestled with them. Before we finish, Raj, we're coming back into Ephesians this coming Sunday. What are we going to be looking at then? Um, well, we're coming into Ephesians 3 this week, and... Um, in Ephesians 3, well, how much do I want to say? Give us like your 20-second teaser. The 20-second teaser. Well, um, it's about God's power. And it comes back to the love of Christ. And and so we're still in this kind of, you know, territory of grappling with being rebels of grace mm. who have received God's grace and what that means. Um, and we just we see from a different angle how it all comes back to God, and um, there's just a golden verse there, you know, that we may have power to get with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. How good is that? And so um, all roads in that chapter kind of lead to that, you know, kind of climax. Mm. So there's my twenty second teaser. Well, to, to come and just focus on that that, that wonderful. Fantastic. My appetite is certainly whetted. I hope yours is too if you're out there listening. And we will see you then on Sunday. Uh, God bless till then. uh, And we'll catch you later. See you everyone.